You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Last 100 years have seen the boom of a particular industry, and that industry is the self-help industry. Every year, people spend billions of dollars on resources that they believe will help them to solve their own problems, supplement their own insufficiencies, and maximize their own potential. Now, if you were raised in American culture, this is your inheritance. This is just in the water. This is how you have been shaped culturally to think and to behave. And after over a century of books and seminars and gurus and programs on personal development and self-improvement, you would think that our society would be filled with superhuman, enlightened Buddhas who have successfully solved all of their issues and maximized all of their potential. But an honest look at the data suggests otherwise, doesn't it? Depression and anxiety are off the charts in our society. Many of us in here have had to battle with that. Chemical and behavioral addictions are running rampant through our society across cultures. The opioid epidemic, for example, is crushing middle America. Consumer debt is at record levels. So much for that self-help on self-control. And the survey results on the general happiness of American adults reveal a steep decline just in the last couple years. Despite the boom of the self-help industry, we are simply not witnessing an upward trajectory of progress in our society. All of these observable realities suggests that there are problems in each of our lives that self-help cannot fix. There are certain complexities to human life that we cannot untangle. There are difficulties that we cannot overcome. And there are even enemies of human flourishing that we cannot defeat by ourselves. Have you wrestled with the reality that you have problems that you cannot help yourself out of? Have you wrestled with that? Have you considered that there are elements of human flourishing that left to yourself you would never choose? The Christian faith teaches that our greatest problems don't require that we help ourselves, but rather humble ourselves to receive outside help from the only one who can handle those problems. In our text for today, we come to one of the most significant events in the history of God's people. If you look at redemptive history, this is a mountain peak. This is a climax in the story. It helps us in many ways, but we need to understand this passage, this text for today is a paradigm. It's a paradigm. It is a form. It's a blueprint It is the architecture that we need to look to in order to understand 
Not just more about our own condition, but more about what God has done for us in the conditions in which we find ourselves. Exodus is a paradigm for us to understand God's great salvation. Today, as we continue through our series that we have called Salvation's Greatest Hits, Volume 1, we are going to get into Exodus chapters 13 and 14. And we are going to engage this passage through two points, very simple points, where we see our great problem and our great redemption. These are our two points for today. The points are simply there to help us to work through the text faithfully, to hang your hat on. We need to look at our great problem, which this text reveals, and our great redemption, which we also see in this text. So let's take a look at our first point where we see our great problem. Now, the very beginning of the book of Exodus gives us a very important setup. The people of Israel have wound up in the land of Egypt as a result of a famine. And one of Israel's greatest stars, Joseph, actually helped the people of the world to make it through a severe seven-year famine. It was intense. And that's how Israel wound up in Egypt. And, and when they got to Egypt, what we saw in Exodus chapter 1 is that God's promise to make his people fruitful and to multiply his people, it didn't matter where they were on the globe. God was going to make that come true. And that's exactly what happened for Israel. We are told that Israel continued to multiply many, many, many kids, like Grace Mosaic, kids everywhere. But the important setup that we get is that we're told in the text that there was a new Pharaoh who came into power. There was a new Egyptian dynasty that came into power. And this new Pharaoh, this new king of Egypt, did not think on outsiders or foreigners or immigrants in a kindly way. He chose a different lens on the different people in his country. And that lens brought him to fear, suspicion, and ultimately to try and pursue conquest of these marginal people. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, perhaps, at the time, takes on the mentality of a vulnerable victim, which makes those people a threatening competitor. And this perspective controls his treatment of Israel. And so he attempts to get control over this group of people that he fears. And the first thing he does is he enacts a policy of ruthless enslavement and forced labor. It's, it's a beating for the people. It's rough going. He enslaves God's people. But then when that's not exactly doing the job, he speaks to the Hebrew midwives and tells them to, to kill the children the little boys of Israel at the birthing stool. And when that isn't good enough, he gives government sanction for any Egyptian to find one of the baby boys of Israel and to throw those baby boys into the Nile. 
It's an unthinkable situation that Israel is in. The book of Exodus has been titled in a very important way that we need to recognize. Exodus is a compound word that means the way out. And this entire story is meant to show us God's way out. God's way out. Way out of what? According to the text of Exodus 1, Israel needed a way out of the affliction of heavy burdens. They needed a way out of oppression and tyranny. They needed a way out of ruthless enslavement and forced labor. They needed a way out of coercive government-enforced immorality. They needed a way out of family devastation and genocide. They needed a way out of state-sponsored violence against their community. But think about the obvious implications of the text. It's not exactly stated there, but you can imagine that this is also the story of Israel's need for a way out of the terror that shrouded their existence. The cloud of despair and hopelessness that hung over their very lives. Their felt sense of forsakenness and worthlessness. What's clear in the text is that the people are not free to simply walk out of Egypt. What's clear in the text is that no amount of self-help books would have gotten them out of Egypt. The Lord had to overcome the tight grip of Pharaoh if Israel was to become free. But we need a way out too, don't we? We need release from modern day Pharaohs such as success and accomplishment, materialism and selfish hoarding, sexual addiction and sensuality, Shallow notions of beauty, ladies, you need a way out. Cultural and political orthodoxies. We need a way out of our own self-righteousness. We're not only in need of the story of Exodus, we need the God of Exodus. We need the same God who acted on behalf of Israel to lead us out of slavery and into the promised land. When the Lord raised up his mediator, Moses, he sent him to tell Pharaoh to let my people go that they can worship me. And when Pharaoh refused, the Lord through Moses sent his judgment plagues on Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt, clearing the way for Israel to march out of slavery. But the text before us tells us that Pharaoh has a change of heart after finally agreeing to let Israel go out of his land. Now, Pharaoh thought that they were just going to go out three days like the original plan was to worship and do their, their thing. But when word gets back to him that after three days they just kept on rolling, he said, wait, hold, we got to get them back. He, he wants to re-enslave them. He wants them under his power to do his bidding. And so he sets off in pursuit of Israel. Israel has a great problem. 
Look at chapter 14, verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihachiroth in front of Baal Tzephon. The problem is that they have an external enemy that is far more powerful than they are. In fact, do you notice how the text is taking pains to express the military might of Egypt? It's meant to show you how stacked against them the deck appeared to be. With their eyes, they saw a host, an army. These chariots were the symbols of Pharaoh's great power over Israel. This is a problem. This is the greatest military power of the day. And it's pursuing little old Israel. And this powerful enemy is bent on evil, bent on doing them harm. He wants to re-enslave them and keep them under his power. But here's the thing. This external enemy is not the only problem. Look at verses 10 through 12 of chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Israel's great problem is not just that they have an external enemy. It's not just environmental factors. It's that they have an internal enemy. Their own hearts. Did you hear this text? Their own sinful hearts are an additional enemy working against them. They have an enemy in Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, but they also have a powerful internal enemy. Their own hearts, look, their own hearts betrayed them. Their own hearts betrayed them, leading them to fear and complaining against God and into deep delusion and rebellion against God. Think about it. They preferred slavery. They preferred to try and improve life in Egypt. They would have settled for an improved life in slavery. Imagine the formative impact of 430 years in slavery. How this affected Israel's internal life. How it shaped their hearts This affected everything from their identity to their sense of self-worth to their sense of security to their worship to their desires to their loves. And we even see this in the text. They wanted to be left alone to remain in Egypt because slavery seemed safer than freedom. They were willing to settle for an improvement of life in Egypt. And here's an important idea I want you to get. Israel's great problem is that they have an external enemy that is far more powerful than they are. 
And this is compounded by the fact that they have an internal enemy in their own sinful hearts. But what we see going on in the text is that the Lord is not just committed to taking Israel out of Egypt, dealing with the external enemy. He also wants to take Egypt out of Israel, dealing with the internal enemy. The Lord shows his commitment to dealing with their great problem of enemies. But we call this passage a paradigm of salvation for good reason, y'all. Because like Israel, we too face external enemies. Ephesians 6 tells us that our battle is not merely against flesh and blood, but against the devil and unseen forces of evil. There are evils in this world that cannot be explained by mere human causality. There are evils far too deep to be explained in merely human terms. And a cross-cultural perspective helps us to see that there are additional external enemies that show up in material and systemic evil, oppressive circumstances, evil government leaders who are opposed to the Lord and his vision of human flourishing. We could name sex trafficking, racism, and human exploitation of all types as enemies. We don't need to spiritualize this text. We need to take it in its comprehensive form. God actually set a real physical people free from a real physical and material bondage. And that must never be spiritualized such that we feel like we can freely ignore the material and physical circumstances of our neighbors. It's both and. Not either or. It's a false choice to say, well, well, what we really need to do is save souls. Save whole people by introducing them to the God of salvation. That's the call. The scriptures don't allow us off the hook where we can just do some drive-by evangelism and leave people in, in terrible material conditions That will ultimately squash the faith that you're trying to give them. That's why scripture has a word and deed paradigm. All of these material and systemic issues are rightly named as external enemies of God and his kingdom. This is what the New Testament calls the world. Not our individual neighbors, but a system that is set in opposition to God that undermines and ruins and obstructs his peace, his shalom, the the flourishing of our world. But we also face the same internal enemy in our own hearts, don't we? Our hearts betray us and lead us to fear and lead us to complaining against God that lead us to deep delusion such that we would rather find an improvement of life in slavery than to actually get free. An improvement of life in slavery is so far beneath what God wants for you. God wants you to be free. 
we can see that Pharaoh and Egypt stand for everything, material and immaterial, that opposes the Lord and his vision of shalom. Pharaoh is a stand-in. And let me just say another cross-cultural piece. This is important. We have brothers and sisters who are Egyptian. Okay? So God is able to transform over time his enemies into his beloved. And you know how I was helped to see that? By an Egyptian brother who jammed me up for not qualifying the Egyptians in this passage. Think about it. If I were preaching to a room full of Egyptian brothers and sisters, I would have to adjust this text and the reading of this text to not just give a flat, unnuanced reading. Egypt and Pharaoh are a stand-in. Just wanted to say that. That's important. These enemies, external and internal, are too powerful for us. They're too much for us to handle. And all of the self-help books in the world will not help us to deal with these greatest problems, which are our enemies, external and internal. This cannot get the job done. The slavery of Israel is a powerful picture that helps us to rightly see our problem and our need. We, too, have lived as slaves, slaves of our own passions, slaves to various substances and bad behaviors. We have been bound. And that is the picture that the scriptures give to us about the state of humanity enslavement we rightly rail against the nearest reference we have for slavery in 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 chattel slavery of african americans in this country we rightly detest it we rightly rail against it we rightly rebuke those who supported it but why is it that we gladly accept accept other slaveries in our own day we gladly give ourselves to become slaves This is not the vision that God has for us. This text teaches us that the Lord is not only committed to taking us out of Egypt, dealing with our external enemies, but he wants to take Egypt out of you to free you from your internal enemy. The Lord does not want to simply help you to improve life in Egypt. He wants to lead you out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of your oppression, out of everything arrayed against the Lord And his vision of flourishing for you. And this leads us to our next point. Our great redemption. This passage is what sets the tone for the biblical usage of the language redemption. In its original context, redemption was the language that was used of freeing somebody from slavery. Of freeing someone from bondage. That's what we use redemption in a very generalized way. But redemption was specifically a freeing of someone in bondage, of someone in slavery. To call the Lord our Redeemer is to call him our great liberator who wants to set us free from slavery. The Lord works his wonders to make us free. But we need to see the setup in this passage. It's beautiful. Okay, it's powerful. Chapter 13, verse 17, the very first verse in this major section 
says this, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. God did not want his people to try and enter Canaan directly by the well-established coastal road from Egypt, which, which was known as the Via Maris, the way of the sea. Even though that was by far the shortest route and the most convenient route. You see, the Lord isn't leading Israel down the easy road. He's not even going to lead them down the hard road. He's going to lead them down the impossible road. He's going to lead them through the sea. The road of salvation is the impossible road that cuts through the sea. He leads them down a road that will seem like a dead end. He leads them down a road that doesn't seem to make any sense. There is a perfectly good road, according to the narrator, that was near, but that is not the road that the Lord chooses. And there's a paradigm for us in here today, beloved. There is an easy road when it comes to spirituality. It's called antinomianism, lawlessness. You make it up as you go along. If it feels right, do it. Mix in a little God and this and that. God, as you choose to define him, and you're all set. It sounds like I'm going to do me. Genesis 3, by the way, we've said, shows us the outcome of that mentality and its total ruin. This is the path of least cultural resistance. But the Lord does not take us down this easy road. You know why? Because the easy road loops back to Egypt. There's also a difficult road. And that road is religious striving or moralism. Follow the rules, behave well, and try to climb your way up to God. You can work your way into divine blessing. When the praises go up, the blessings come down. Lies, all lies. All lies. You know how you fix that? The blessings already came down, so the praises need to go up. All right? This isn't a quid pro quo with God. God, I give you a little obedience, and you give me a little bit what I want, right? It's a way, the hard road of, of religious striving and moralism is a way of trying to put God in your debt so that God owes you a nice life, so that God owes you that promotion, so that God owes you that trouble-free life. It's trying to put God in your debt. But the Lord doesn't take us down this road either. You know why? God doesn't take us down the hard road because that road too loops back to Egypt. The Lord takes us down the impossible road. It's the gospel road. This road will bring you to the end of yourself to the end of your resources. This road reveals our complete inability to control things or manage outcomes. This road reveals our helplessness and our weakness and our vulnerability, but it reveals the Lord's power and his wisdom and his commitment to protect his people. The impossible road passes through death, but it leads to life. The impossible road passes through despair, but it rises in hope. 
The easy road and the difficult road both loop back around to Egypt because they are both simply ways of trying to help ourselves, taking our lives into our own hands. Only the impossible road leads out of Egypt because this is where we put our lives in God's hands and trust him to liberate us. On the impossible road, God shows his people that he doesn't need a pathway because he's a way maker. He can cut a path where there was no path. He can make a way out of no way. He can handle our enemies, both internal and external. And all we have to do is fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for us. And this is precisely what the Lord does in the gospel. Because the Son of God took the impossible road through a virgin's womb, through a life of suffering, through a cross, and that impossible road through a tomb. He has shown us the outcome of putting our lives in God's hands. And now we see that the Lord Jesus is the appointed mediator. Like Israel, we're not just following a particular pathway. We're following a particular savior. Jesus is the way out of slavery. He is the doorway of deliverance. He is the pathway of peace. He is the roadway of redemption. He is the highway of holiness. In this text, the Lord shows up in a pillar of fire and a cloud, depending on whether it was day or night. And he leads Israel out of Egypt. And here's the thing I want you to see. When the enemy pursues Israel, the Lord moves from the front of the congregation, leading them to position himself between Israel and their enemy. In other words, the Lord literally had their back. He gets in between Israel and the enemy. But in the gospel, the Lord takes it to another level because he doesn't just get in between the church and the enemy. He gets in between his people and a holy God whose justice no sinner could survive. He goes in between. When Moses stretches out his hands, the sea becomes the instrument of salvation for Israel. But when Moses stretches out his hands again to close the sea, it becomes the instrument of judgment over Israel's enemy. But the good news for us is that when the great mediator, Jesus Christ, stretched out his hands... He provided the way of salvation. He made the cross an instrument of salvation for his people. And at the same time, when he stretched out his hands, the cross became the instrument of judgment on all the evil and the brokenness and the curse of this world. When he stretched out his hands, that was when the expiration date on everything that plagues us in this world was stamped. It does have an end date. It's the entire person and work of Christ that becomes the instrument of salvation for God's people and judgment on all of the enemies of God and God's desire for flourishing. Christ will have victory 
over poverty. He will have victory over human exploitation. He will have victory over racism and injustice and violence and even the sin within our hearts. He will have victory. And that's what the end of the story tells us. It's one grand celebration of the victory of the Lamb. And at the end of the narrative, we're told that Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Not one of them survived. They lived to see their enemies dead at their feet. And the promise of the gospel is that one day we will live to see our great enemies dead at our feet. We will see depression dead at our feet. We will see oppression dead at our feet. We will see sin and evil and even death itself dead at our feet. And we, like Israel, will sing a new song to the Lord, a song of joyous victory for his mighty acts of redemption. One day we will truly be free. Right now we're in the wilderness on the way and we are being fed and we are being kept. We are being protected. The pillar of cloud and fire has become the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God is with us, going ahead of us, standing beside us, standing behind us, upholding us from below, reigning over us from above, as St. Patrick said. But what are we to do with this passage? Briefly, some ways that you can work this out, things to take home with you. First, this narrative should shape our spirituality in a few ways. We should identify and repent of all the ways that we are taking a self-help approach to life and spirituality. Where do you see self-help impulses cropping up in your life? You know what self-help really shows up like? Prayerlessness. You need help finding it? Look for where you don't feel any need to pray. And there is where you see a self-help spirit, and that is where you need repentance. Next, I mean, well, let me give a few more diagnostics for identifying that self-help spirit. Where do you feel like you can go without God's help? Where do you feel like you can go without God's help? Where is your pride resulting in an independent spirit? Either a withdrawal from your need for community or a prayerlessness, repentance. Next, this text should lead us to concern for both the material and the spiritual needs of our neighbors because God cares about liberation in both spaces. The error of progressive liberal Christianity is that it majors on the material and it has convoluted the spiritual. The error of much of conservative Christianity is that it has majored on the spiritual and it has neglected the material needs of human beings. As we said earlier, that is a false choice that does not need to be made. We care about whole people, body and soul. A lot of times, helping somebody with the light bill is just what they need to be able to get their mind thinking about spiritual things. If your mind is so preoccupied with your grumbling belly, how are you supposed to think about anything spiritual when gospel track man comes walking down the street? It's hard, y'all. If you want to know what it's like, you need to take up the practice of fasting. That's why we fast as a community. 
Not only because we're hungry and desirous of the Lord's action, but so that we can live in solidarity with our, our brothers and sisters and neighbors who don't know where their next meal is coming from. It's meant to create empathy, sympathy that, that moves toward action. Okay? But we don't need to do this false dichotomy stuff. We did not learn Christ that way. Next, this text should lead us to deepen our longing for complete redemption. The Lord wants to take you out of Egypt, and he wants to take Egypt out of you. In what ways are you simply trying to improve life in Egypt? You need to wrestle with that. In what ways are you simply trying to improve life in Egypt? That takes the form of rationalizing particular sins in your life. It takes the form of rationalizing the absence of certain virtues in your life. Let's just say materialism is the Pharaoh that's really gripping you. But all you do is rationalize. You know, D.C. is so expensive. You know, I, I, I mean, I don't really have anything to give in the city. You know, like, I don't really have anything to give to the church. Like, you know, the crumbs maybe. That is trying to improve life in Egypt. You could do that with sexual addiction. You could do that with any struggle that you're having where, where sin is besting you. And you are tempted to settle for that, to just accept it as a reality rather than to mortify it. That is trying to improve life in Egypt. God wants better for you. He wants you out of Egypt. Finally, when the Lord leads you down roads that don't make sense to you, embrace the journey in faith because he intends to reveal his glory to you on that particular pathway. Israel would never have chosen his road. And there are many roads that the Lord takes you down that you would not choose. But the Lord is wise. He knows the best routes and the best ends. And he's doing that in your life too. So when the road doesn't make sense, trust and believe that the Lord is out to show you something of his glory on that peculiar road. Let us give up our self-help spirit. Because our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, redeemer and friend. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.